Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand. And this morning we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, our text this morning. We're starting a new series today called Serving With Your Gifts. It's only four sermons long. And today we're going to be looking at serving with your spiritual gifts. And then next week we're going to talk about serving one another with the right attitude. And then we're going to talk about uh, serving one another and the lost through evangelism. And then uh, we're going to uh, wrap it all up, getting ready for August the 18th as we look to Psalm 133, serving with unity. And so uh, last Sunday, you remember that uh, we finished up Psalm 134, which is the last of the Psalms of Ascent, those songs that Jewish pilgrims sang on their way up to the temple to worship. And remember that Psalm addressed a group of priests who I called the night watchmen of the Lord. They were those priests who, after everyone else had gone back to everyday life, they stayed at the temple, they kept the fires going, uh, they made sure the Lord was being worshipped year-round, and really it was was those people who served behind the scenes without much recognition. And so today, I want to remind you that verse 1 of chapter 134 of Psalm said that all servants are to serve the Lord. It says, Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord. In other words, the night watchman had a specific or special calling to serve, but all God's people are to serve in some capacity. And in the New Testament context, we read that God is working primarily in and through his church. The Greek word most often translated the English word church in the Bible literally means called out once. And so the church then is a group of people called out by God to serve him to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures indicate that not only does God call out individuals to serve him, but also he equips them with spiritual gifts for that purpose. The Apostle Paul makes that argument very well in passages that he wrote, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so the Apostle Peter affirms that doctrine in our text this morning. Let's read 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of good judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, right away in verse 7, we see the urgency of service. Peter's argument begins with his belief that the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, Peter is not a doomsday conspiracy theorist. He is saying that the end of things is near. He is speaking with a big picture of human history. Peter, like most Christians I know, have a keen interest in eschatology. 
the study of last days or last things. And Peter is likely the one that asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1, is this the time now that you're going to restore your kingdom? Remember what Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Peter has not forgotten that rebuke by Jesus. He's not saying, I have figured it out and I know the date that Jesus is coming and so you better work hard until this date. He's just saying that Jesus has accomplished everything that God the Father sent him to the earth to accomplish. He lived a perfect life. He died a righteous, atoning death and he arose on the third day victorious. And Jesus, of course, said to his apostles in John 14 that he was going away for a while and that he was going to prepare a place for them that where he is, they can be also. He says, if I go away, I'll come again in like manner. And so Peter lived his life with that sense of expectation that Jesus was coming soon and therefore he did not have time to waste. And of course, this should give all Christians living today because here's what we know, though we like Peter don't know the day in which Christ is coming. Here's what we do know. That day is 2,000 years closer than when Peter said it. And so the day is approaching. And so we should live our lives with that sense of expectation, with that sense of urgency, realizing that time is short, judgment is sure, and hell is hot. We don't have time to play church. We don't have time to slumber and go through the motions. This is a time for watchful prayer and diligent service. It's not a time for frivolity or insobriety. But that is not to say that Christians should not be joyful. We know we should and must be. In fact, we're commanded to be by the Apostle Paul in passages such as Philippians 4, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, that commandment was so important to Paul, he repeated it. And he says, and again, I say, rejoice. We are to be joyful, but that does not mean that we are to waste time. The business of being a New Testament believer in the midst of, of a lost and dying, and I would add dark world, is a serious task, and it is urgent. So next, let's look at the motivation to serve. We see the urgency of service. Verse 8 tells us the motive for service. He says, above all, that is our first importance, right at the top of your list, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter had lived the Christian life for a few decades by this point, we believe, and, and so he had seen in his own life, I take it, and observed from other Christians in the church that our zeal and our love for one another waxes and wanes, doesn't it? We are not perfectly consistent across the continuum. And so he's calling us to stoke those fires of fervent love for one another that can grow cold over time and with familiarity. So he says, keep fervent in your love as a constant act, be stoking that love for one another. Now, now we know the primary way the New Testament reveals that we serve Christ is through serving one another in the context of the church. That's why it's so important that every believer have a local church home to which they belong. And before Paul, though, was converted on the road to Damascus, he was not a member of the church. He was a persecutor of the church. But when the risen Lord Jesus confronted Paul, Saul, he called him, on the road to Damascus, he did not ask him why he was persecuting the church. He asked him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I take from that, that the Lord Jesus so identifies with believers that to speak of the church 
is to speak of Christ. Now, what does that have to do with our love for one another? Well, just this. Occasionally, people will say things to me. You've probably heard similar things like this. Well, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. They have harmed me in, in some way. I don't love the church. Well, 1 Corinthians 1.27 says we are Christ's body and individual members of it. In fact, the New Testament refers to the church as the bride of Christ. That is, the two are so intimately related that to love one is to love the other. And by the way, vice versa, to hate one is to hate the other. And of course, speaking of marriage, the scripture says the two will become one flesh. And so if you were to say to me, Brother Pastor, I, I just love you, but I hate your wife, Melissa. You and I are going to have a problem, right? It, it would be nonsensical for you to tell me that you love me and hate my wife. And it's just as nonsensical for someone claiming to be a believer to say they love Jesus, but to hate his church. The church are the people that Jesus died for. The scripture calls them the apple of his eye, the thing that is most precious to him. John 13, 35, Jesus says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So love for fellow believers is assumed. Peter is just encouraging us to fan again the flames of this love as a motivator for service. Keep it up, he says, keep fervent. Don't let it flag in enthusiasm. And you'll note though, he assumes, I take it, that when humans even born-again humans like people in the church are living in close proximity to one another. We're in pretty close proximity this morning, would you agree? If we were to, to live that way consistently, consistently, it wouldn't take very long until we hurt one another's feelings. Because we're still human, even though we're born again, we're bound to rub one another the wrong way. In fact, we are bound to sin against one another, given enough time and opportunity. But if our love for one another is fervent, we can continue to serve together in the same church even though we've hurt one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now be careful here. When he says that love covers a multitude of sins, he's not saying to cover sins is to instigate or perpetuate a cover up. To pretend that sins don't occur or haven't occurred. Our own Southern Baptist Convention, our national denomination, has found this out the very hard way as it relates to sexual abuse and sins, in which rather than addressing sins the correct and scriptural way, we've simply swept them under the rug. And that's not what he means here. Sin is never to be ignored. It's to be dealt with, and then it's to be forgiven. That, in essence, is what it means that love covers a multitude of sins. Love forgives a multitude of different kinds of, of sin. We show our love by forgiving or, for, or covering sin. But he also says we do that through showing hospitality. Now when Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists in the South, hear the word hospitality, a casserole dish comes into our mind. <laughs> but hospitality is more than a covered dish with something in it. Hospitality really is the attitude of putting the needs of other believers before your own in a consistent, habitual way. It's not just that we make sacrifices for the good of the body, it's the attitude with which we do it. Look what he said, showing hospitality to one another without complaining. Now that is a Bible verse that our four children were taught 
from the crib by my wife. And it comes up almost daily. Do everything without complaining or arguing. And the reason is that God seems to have a very special hatred for complaining. It may surprise you to hear me say that God hates certain things. He does. There are lists in the Bible of things that God hates. One of the things God hates is murmuring, complaining. Remember the Old Testament. God provided for His chosen people with food, for protection, with housing. And yet they murmur, they complain, and He hated it. And let me get very specific. This church family, First Baptist Keller, has an opportunity in days ahead and even today to put into practice this commandment to show hospitality to one another, to put the other person's need first. Many of you already have. Many of you have been displaced from your favorite pew. <laughs> you're, you're sitting closer together than you're comfortable doing. And yet, it's an opportunity to show hospitality without complaining, which, by the way, you've all done for the most part. But we can all do better. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, the third thing we see here is the call to service. Now we're really getting at the heart of this section of Scripture. We're talking about serving with your special gift, your spiritual gift. Verse 10, he says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's a very complex sentence. It is just absolutely dripping with theological richness. And, and let me point out six things quickly from this one verse. The first is that Peter assumes each person has a gift. He says, as each one has received a spiritual gift. There, there's no room in the mind of the Apostle Peter of the possibility for a giftless Christian. And so that's what we teach and believe here, that every Christian has at least one spiritual gift to be brought to bear in the local church. There are no unnecessary parts. The second thing we see is that uh, we have received this as a gift. These abilities to serve are not grounds for boasting or pride. Someone gives you a gift, you can't say, look what I did. They gave it to you. Salvation, for example, is by grace, and we can't boast that we saved ourselves. It was a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God, and your spiritual giftedness is a gift from God. But also, look that it's, it's not an ornamental gift. Sometimes when we get a present, Christmas, birthday, anniversary, we, we open it up, and it's obvious from its fragility or from its uh, beauty that it is not to be used but admired from afar. So we put it on a wall, we put it on a shelf, we put it in a curio cabinet, and the kids are instructed, don't go anywhere near it. Because it's a gift to be admired from afar but not to be handled. That is not what a spiritual gift is. Spiritual gift is to use. Look what he says. As each one has received a special gift, comma, employ it in serving one another. If you employ someone, you put them to work. So God's given you a gift not to admire from afar, but to put it to work in the context of the church. Well, that uh, leads to an interesting question. How do we do that? How do we tap into that gift for the Lord's glory? He tells us, serve one another. Serve one another. It's not some ethereal thing to exercise a spiritual gift. It's God will point out to people, individuals in the congregation who have needs, that you have been gifted in a way that can meet that need. 
And I said this morning in the previous service, and I'm going to tell you the same thing. When I first came here, oftentimes when there was a need in the church, individuals, Sunday school classes would come to me and say, hey, there's this need in my class. And I'm glad for that. I need to know those things. Our, our pastors need to know where there's a need. But I've noticed a subtle change over the last 15 years in that regard. And that is now what is more common is that I will hear that there was a need in a Sunday school class and that it's already been met. That is spiritual growth. That is maturation. That is sanctification at work. And that's really all it is to use your spiritual gift is to see a need and prayerfully bring your gifts humbly to the Lord and say, how may I meet that need? Serving one another. But note also, we serve one another with a view to accountability. He says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward, as you know, is someone who manages something or property that belongs to another. And he knows that at the end of that service, there's going to be an accounting of that. Jesus told a number of parables about stewardship. And so if that is the case, and it obviously is, that we're going to give an account to the Lord for how we handled our unique spiritual gifts, it makes sense to say this is not optional for believers. We can't say, well, I'm not going to use my spiritual gift. Jesus told a very pointed story about a man who took his talents and hit them in the ground. When the master came for an account, he didn't say smart thinking to put it in a safe place and not use it. He rebuked him because he didn't invest it in the kingdom work. And so your spiritual gifts are not to be hidden. They're not for you to take out from time to time and admire in private. They're to be used in the context of the church in serving other believers. And then he wraps it up by saying, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He's reminding us all that these gifts come from God and are aimed at His glory. Something is manifold. It exhibits many different nuances of truth. And we know that's true as I look out on the congregation today. I can't imagine any spiritual need that could arise in our church that there aren't people with the skills, the the gifts and the abilities to meet that need. God has blessed our church, not only with a large number of gifted Christians, but with a wide variety of spiritual gifts. And that is owing to his power and to his creativity. So again, we can't boast in that. We simply thank God and give him glory for his creativity and the distribution of the gifts through his Holy Spirit. So we probably should have started with this, but it's time now to define what a spiritual gift is. Maybe you're wondering, a spiritual gift is simply this. It's a God-given ability to perform a useful service in the body of Christ. That's not original with me, just, but it's true. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability to perform a useful service in the body of Christ. Now, several times in the New Testament, we find lists of spiritual gifts. Romans 12, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and of course here in 1 Peter... He speaks of spiritual gifts in two broad categories uh, of gifts. Two broad categories of of gifts. Uh, Look what he says, verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, in those other passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, we do have elucidated 
uh, a list of seven, a list of 13, a list of five gifts. But here Peter divides all those gifts into two broader categories, what I would call speaking gifts and then service gifts. Speaking gifts are obvious, preaching, teaching, exhortation. Service gifts are a little more subtle. Sometimes the scripture talks about the gift of helps, which is a very broad category of serving other believers. Some have the gift of giving and generosity. Still others have the gift of discernment. I think if there's any gift that is needed in the world today, in the church today, is the gift of discernment. How valuable it is for those who can hear information and understand what God's will is through that. As we saw last week, though, some of these gifts, particularly the speaking gifts, are more public and out front and therefore get a lot more attention. But in the eyes of God, all the gifts are important and necessary and mesh together in harmony to bring Him glory. And I, and I would just say this, when a church is full of people who are humbly putting one another's needs before their own, who are exercising their own individual gifts by serving others in the church for the glory of God, there's not a more beautiful thing on planet earth to see. On the other hand, when a church is full of people who are taking care of number one, who are putting their gifts on a mantle and admiring them from afar, who aren't meeting the needs as they observe them, but passing those on down the line to other people, the church can be a place of great pain and difficulty. And when people say, like I mentioned earlier, that I love Christ, but I hate his church, it is likely they've had a bad experience in one of those kinds of churches. And so I'm sympathetic with those sorts of people, but uh, guess what? If you're a Christian, you are part of the church. Every person is a part. Paul talks about the church in terms of a body. Some are eyes and some are ears, but all parts are important. And, and, and just like a human body, a great athlete or a, a great dancer who have trained their body, every part of it to work in harmony and in great precision, it can be a thing of grace and beauty to behold. But when it's not working that way, when the body's fighting against itself, it's a, a torturous thing to see. And it is my prayer that our church would continue to grow and make progress, to become everything that the Lord would want us to be in the area of serving one another with our, spirit, with our spiritual gifts. Now, uh, one more point I want to make, and that is the provision for service. It's all well and good to say we all have a gift. It's all wonderful to say everybody should be using their gifts. But, but in what capacity? Well, he tells us even the practice of our spiritual gift is not left up to us. And so he says, whoever speaks, whoever has one of these speaking gifts is to speak as it were the utterances of God. And that simply means that when a person stands to speak and they're claiming to be speaking for God, we need to be discerning to know if what they're saying and teaching and preaching lines up with scripture. Because God is not going to speak against God, is he? And so if there's something that's plain in Scripture and someone claiming to be representing God speaks against that thing, we know that that person is not speaking the utterances of God. And then he says those who have those gifts in other areas, the gifts of service, are to serve not in their own strength or ability, but they're to serve in the strength that he supplies. That is a recognition that this task is too great for us. 
Sometimes hear people say, God will never put more upon you than you can bear. Yes, He will. He puts more on us than we can bear so that we'll come to Him humbly and say, Lord, I need help. And I mentioned in my prayer time earlier that uh, we spend a good portion of every Monday around here as a staff in prayer, really several hours all told. We start the week in prayer. And what we try to do is to say, thank you, Lord, for how you provided for us last week, the strength that you provided for the task, the wisdom you provided, the materials that you provided. And then we turn our attention to the week ahead and say, Lord, we're still needy people. We have to come back to you one more time because we don't know what the day uh, has in store. We don't know what the week has in store. We don't know who's going to walk through the, the doors on the third floor and what needs they're going to have. And Lord, it's too great for us. We need the strength that only you can provide. And that is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of meekness, humility. And the Lord loves that humble and contrite heart. Now, one more, the goal of service. The goal of service. Peter says we do all of that, that is we serve with our unique gifts that the Lord has provided. We show hospitality to one another. We put one another's needs first. Why? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember Psalm 134 begins with this verse, Bless the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord. And we define blessing the Lord this way. What does it mean to bless the Lord? It means to think, to speak, and behave as if the Lord's glory is your highest aim. Because it is to be our highest aim, isn't it? By the way, to glorify God is God's highest aim. The greatest glorifier of God is God. When he created the planets and, and the moons and the stars and all of the celestial bodies, he did it for His glory. When He created human life, He did it for His glory. When He set apart Abraham and his descendants to be His chosen people, He did it for His glory. When He sent Jesus to die in the place of sinners like us, He did it for His glory. And when He comes again for His church, He will do it ultimately for His glory. So everything that we do between now and then should be done with our highest aim of, of bringing Him glory. We serve one another in the church, and we serve those outside of the church in the community, not to draw attention to ourselves, not to get a pat on the back or, or even a plaque, but rather to make much of God. In fact, there's a great word in the English Bible, magnify the Lord. To magnify God is to make Him easier to see for others. You remember 10th grade biology class and that you got to look in the microscope. And when you magnified something, you, you made it larger, you made it clearer to see and to understand. Well, this is what we do with our gifts. When we exercise our spiritual gifts in the context of the local church, when we become recognizable by our love for one another, what we're really doing is magnifying the Lord in the world. We are making much of him. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. And when we do those good works, our faith then is revealed. If spiritual gifts are God-given abilities to bless the Lord, faith is the God-given ability to trust the Lord's promises. 
And when we spend our lives with a view to heaven, not for the applause of men, we are showing that we have genuine faith. We've been studying faith last few weeks on Wednesday night here. Hebrews 11 is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. Hebrews 11, 1, the, the author defines faith. But in verse 6, he says, uh, person of faith is one who first believes that there is a God, and then secondly, that he's a rewarder of all those who diligently search for him, seek him. And so a person of faith is one who can lay aside the personal ambition for attention, for fame, for wealth, with a bigger purpose in view of glorifying God, knowing that the rewards in heaven are greater than anything this world affords. And if you live your life like that, if this church collectively lives our lives like that, we are going to stand out from the world in such a wonderful way. Because the truth is, people in a lost and dying world don't live that way. They're living their life for the here and now. They're living their life for personal attention. They're living their life for what they can get in the here and now, whether that's pleasure or material comfort. But a Christian, a person of genuine faith, is one who puts the needs of others before their own as a consistent pattern of life for the glory of Christ with the faith that he will give eternal rewards in glory. That's what scripture means when it says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the moth cannot destroy and the rust cannot corrupt and the thief cannot break in and steal. God is, he exists, and he is a rewarder of all of those who diligently seek him. Now let's pray and ask the Lord's help to be the kind of servants that would glorify him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, this uh, passage in 1 Peter is a famous one, but it's a good one. It's one we need to be reminded of often, especially in times like these where uh, we're called to be hospitable to one another, to put the needs of others first without complaining. Lord, help us to do that. I'm thankful for the way that our people are doing that and will do that as we go through this transition period in the fall. Father, we're human. Our tendency is to grow cold and hot and we're inconsistent. Peter says that of first importance, we are to fan that flame of fervent love for one another because it's bound to happen when we are in such close proximity that we're gonna hurt one another's feelings and maybe Lord, we're even gonna outright sin against one another. But Lord, if we have fervent love, we can cover that sin with forgiveness. Yes, we'll address it, but then we will forgive it and give it to you. Go on serving together, Lord, in the context of this local church. And Father, I pray if there's a person here today who is a believer, but they don't understand what their spiritual gift is or where they're to serve, I pray you'd help them, Lord, to identify that gift. And, and then, Father, go, go to work. When they see a need, meet that need, Father, not for personal attention or fame, but for your glory. Father, I pray that all of us would be willing to do that. Father, our aim is not to have the biggest church. Our aim is not to have a great reputation. Our aim, simply stated, is to bring glory to Jesus, to magnify and make much of Him. And we trust the results to Him. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.